If you have a, a Bible with you this morning, please open it to John chapter 18. Who is Jesus? We ought to make a big deal out of that question. I think we do a pretty decent job of making a big deal out of it. For a long time, scholars have worked very hard to try and find what the real Jesus is, the historical Jesus is. So for many of them, it's unclear why they should wholeheartedly believe the things that the Bible happens to say about this Jesus. Wouldn't it make sense, they would argue, for those who are closest to Jesus and frankly who make, in some senses, a living out of his proclamation and exaltation to fabricate, to make up somewhat more elaborate accounts of Jesus' life than what actually occurred in reality. So throughout the ages, principally in the last 200 years, liberal Protestants, many of them German, have sought to get rid of these fabricated bits that they considered to be part of the Bible, and and in getting rid of those bits, they can find underneath it somewhere the real historical Jesus. In the end, I think it turned out to be quite a farce. The scholar George Tyrell said about Alfred Harnack, who was one of the fathers of this way of thinking about Jesus, that the Christ that Harnack sees, looking back through 19 centuries of Catholic darkness, is only the reflection of a liberal Protestant face seen at the bottom of a deep well. So what he's basically saying is these scholars look back through history like they were looking down into a well. And what they wanted to find was getting rid of all of the the stuff that the Bible says and, and elaborates on Jesus, which we can't trust, they would argue. What they did is they cleared out what they thought was all that rubbish, and what they found staring back at them was simply their own face. They had created a Jesus that looked more like them than like anything that you would have found in first century Palestine. We are always prone to this kind of thing. When we seek to make God in our own image, in our own likeness, it's not a shame or it's not, it's not out of reality. It makes perfectly good sense that when we do that, the God that we make will look a lot like us. We need to be careful While we believe, perhaps you believe that this is the word of God, that you are not reading it, you're not understanding it in such a way that you are looking past the obviousness of what the text says simply to get the Jesus that you want. We only truly know who Jesus is by the words that have been left for us. Many might think that these words are nothing more than fiction, more myth than reality. And so it's been a little hard for me to see why, if you believe at all in the resurrection. Uh, it doesn't seem like any of the miracles that Jesus did other than that. You know, once you, get, once you get past that particular miracle level, the rest of them don't seem too terribly difficult, right? If you can raise yourself from the dead, I don't think giving sight back to the blind is all that tough. At any rate, what is left for us is all that we get. Whether you like it or not, there are no other sources for the life of Jesus from the first century. These are them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the, the bits and pieces that we get from Paul and James and Peter. Today, then, as we begin the matter of Jesus' passion, of the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, we start with a comparison of characters between Jesus and those who will mainly, although not only, make up most of this passion narrative. Who then is this Jesus that John is presenting to us? Let us read John 18 verses 1 through 14 as we begin to discover this. Beginning in verse 1. 
John writes this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met with his disciples there. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of our God. As we look to this to see something of these character traits between Jesus and all of the other people who are kind of associated in this particular story, we first find that Jesus is sovereign and Judas is sinful. Jesus is sovereign, and Judas is sinful. Look at how John, through this narrative, makes Jesus in control of every single thing that's happening to him. In verse 2, Jesus goes to a place where he knows Judas will know to find him. He doesn't go to a far-off place where he can hide so that Judas has a hard time coming and, and knowing where he's going to be. He knows exactly where he needs to go. And not only that, it's clear that Judas knows exactly where to take those officers because Judas had been there before. Jesus wasn't running from this. He was making it very easy for Judas to find him and for, therefore, all of the officers and the soldiers to find him. In verse 4, John is very clear. Jesus knows all that is going to happen to him. He knows the future from the past. There is no doubt that Jesus is knowledgeable about everything that's going on. In verse 8, Jesus commands the officers and the Jews and the soldiers of Rome. He looks at them and he says, if you're here to arrest me, you will arrest me, but you're going to let these people go. Unlike the other Gospels, where Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Here, Judas is only present in the story to bring the officers here. Jesus fairly gives himself over. As a matter of fact, the way it says that they arrested him, it's more like Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. There is no kiss by Judas. Judas quickly becomes nothing more than a bystander. It's interesting when he says, who are you seeking? And he says, Jesus of Nazareth. It says just very plainly that Judas was there with them. 
as though Judas had no more role to play. Now, while all of this is somewhat limited, this is an introduction into what will be the passion narrative of Jesus' life in the book of John, and it's going to be clear throughout the book of John, especially in these chapters, that Jesus is in control of everything that's going to happen to him in the passion. Jesus is not being led somewhat unwillingly into his fate. Jesus is not simply fulfilling destiny or fate that has been laid out for him. Rather, Jesus is in full control of that destiny and in full control of that fate. And John's gospel makes this abundantly clear, and that is especially important in light of the other gospels. The other gospels picture Jesus as sort of a willing servant, and he is that. They picture his great trepidation, and of course he has that, especially here in the garden where he is fervently praying But John chooses to fix his gaze on other aspects of how Jesus is approaching his upcoming death, not just as a willing participant, understandably filled with trepidation and fear over the fate that awaits him, but also as the master of that situation, one who is not just led, but rather leads in every bit of the trial and the crucifixion, one who is in full control over all things, not an object of fate, but a subject of history. Now, all of this is good news for us. We speak on the sovereignty of Jesus all the time, and we do it because, well, he's he's really sovereign over all things, and this is incredibly good for us, right? And, And all of the turmoil in life and all of the ups and downs that you will go through, all of the darkness that you will head through in your time in life, it is good to know that the one who died for you, who loved you, is in sovereign control over all things, Everything happens according to the will of one who has loved you and has laid down his life for you. But here, particularly, let us see that Jesus is not just being led, but leading is good news for us. Jesus isn't just doing the will of God dutifully, if not joyfully, but he was actually achieving God's will. He was making it happen. He was desiring to see it come about. He's not this unwilling sacrifice simply given over to what might be called a precarious will of the Father that he wasn't exactly excited about or he didn't really want to do, but the Father asked him to, and so because he has to be the obedient son, he goes through and does it anyway. But Jesus fully accepts and desires the price that our redemption requires. He didn't simply hand himself over to evil, but showed himself greater than all of the evil and superior over all of its schemes and plans. Judas, however, is not cleared by this. The reaction that a lot of people give when they hear about the sovereignty of God is sometimes to to kind of excuse themselves and excuse their sin and say things like, well, if, if God is truly sovereign over all things, if he's got it in control, and we're not just talking about like he's got the whole world in his hand, like he keeps it in place, but the events of history happen because God has declared that they would happen. And people think, well, then my sin is somewhat inevitable. If, if God has the end determined from the beginning, then the things that I do in the, the middle have to happen, and, and I'm not truly in control. I don't have freedom of choice that way, and if I don't have freedom of choice, I don't see how I can be declared wrong. This is indeed the reaction, not only about people today, but even back in the first century, as Paul was writing about the fact that God often hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh 
was told, let my people go. And Pharaoh actually read through Exodus. Pharaoh all the time was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea now. And then scripture says, and God hardened his heart. And then all of a sudden Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do it. The end result of that in Romans 9, 18 through 21 is this. Paul's conclusion, so then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Realize what Paul is saying there. When he says, who are you to answer back to God? When Paul has been talking about scripture, what he means is, this is what scripture says. Your first response ought not be to put up philosophical objections to the thing. Your first response ought to be, God, let me believe the word that you have spoken to us. Who are we to tell God what his word ought to say and ought not to say? Pharaoh is guilty, and Pharaoh was under the control of God. These things are held in tandem together. Paul goes on to say, Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of one lump a vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? Judas might well say the same thing. Jesus, I heard that you prayed just two weeks ago. In John 17, I heard that you called me the son of destruction. This is the son who is always bent and destined for destruction. If I was him, how could I have acted differently here? But there's no doubt. John holds him accountable. He is the one who betrays Jesus. He is the one who leads officers. They're not just officers of the Jews, but also a Roman officer or Roman soldiers to him. He leads both the Jews and the Gentiles to Jesus to condemn him. He is the one who brings the world against Jesus. Scripture is all in on the condemnation of Judas and his actions. He lifted up his heel, even as Jesus said, not but several chapters ago, when he shared a meal with Judas, who would betray him? Jesus quoted from Psalm 41. Typically 41.9, but we're going to read the two verses before, the one verse before and the one verse after that from Psalm 41. This is talking about David, which means it's talking about Jesus. His enemies say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. What David talked about there was being brought low. What Jesus means and understands from this is that he wouldn't just be brought low, but he would die and go into the ground to be raised up again. But it's clear, as that was prophesied and the prophecy would come true around Judas, Jesus is very clear that I may repay them. Friends, while Jesus is sovereign, Judas is still sinful and has a just repayment coming to him for an incredibly faithless act. But your sin also has no excuse. You're not going to be able to stand before God and use metaphysical or philosophical tricks to try and get out of the fact that you are a sinner and that the justice of God is due upon that sin, that his wrath is rightly placed upon you. You cannot escape by saying, I I was subject to destiny, or I was subject to fate, or I was subject to your will, or however you want to put it. 
none of that will get you out of the penalty that is due to you. There is one thing that you will be able to say that will be allowable to get you out of that, and that is, Jesus died for me, a sinner. The only excuse we have coming before God. The only thing that will remove our penalty from us, the only thing that will excuse our sin is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Confess your sin. Confess that the Lord Jesus Christ paid for it. Trust in that confession with your whole heart and you will be saved. Jesus is sovereign and we are sinful. Jesus, therefore, secondly, is also majestic and these soldiers are meager. Jesus is majestic and the soldiers are meager. Judas shows up with this very large contingent. The Jewish officers are likely the same ones from chapter 7 who were sent originally to arrest Jesus, but hearing him talk, they said, I don't know, we can't really arrest this guy. And when the Pharisees ask him about it, they're like, listen, we've never heard a guy talk like this, and so we just refuse to arrest him, much to the chagrin of them. But now they're back, and they're going to arrest him. They come then with this large Roman contingency. Now, the reason why the Roman contingency is there is likely because this is the Passover and they're going to arrest a zealot. That is primarily what Rome thinks of people who call themselves the Christ or the Messiah or this Jewish king. They think of them as zealots. And with all of the Jewish people here, if they started to get riled up as Jewish nationalism is at an all-time high right around the Passover, when, when this is going to happen, they are concerned that this guy is going to freak out, he's going to start a rebellion, and then they're going to have to squash it. So better get it while it's small than before it gets too large. This band of soldiers is actually somewhere between, I don't know, a couple dozen to 600 men. Typically, it refers to about 600 men. It's hard to believe that there is actually 600 there. Probably much fewer than that but it's clear that Rome shows up with power in order to suppress anything bad that would happen. What's interesting, though, is they show up with all this force, with torches and lanterns and with weapons, and they are questioned by Jesus. They do not question him, but he questions them. Jesus is, again, taking control. Whom do you seek? They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And then something unexpected happens. They all decide at the same time to play a quick game of ring around the rosy, and they all fall down. It's surprising. It's tough to even kind of know exactly what's going on. Jesus says, I am he, and for some reason, they all back away and they fall down. The word that Jesus uses here is the famous I am statement. We translate it differently at different times because, frankly, it needs to be. It's the same thing that he said back in John 8, 58, when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And saying it there in the context is clearly a reference to Jesus calling himself the Yahweh of the Old Testament, saying, I am that same God of the Old Testament. But it doesn't always have to mean that. The blind man, when questioned about whether he was the one who was blind and made to see by Jesus, says the exact same thing, I am. It doesn't have any great theological significance to it. It's tough to see this as having any great theological significance to it either, frankly, because it's unlikely that officers, it's unlikely that any of the people there would have backed off. The Romans wouldn't have understood what it meant. The Jews likely would have stoned him, which is exactly what they tried to do the first time. 
could be, perhaps simply, that Jesus allowed a bit, just a touch of his glory and his majesty to be heard. I don't know of any other explanation for it. Something of the voice that created all things snuck out. Just a a little bit of his majesty, just hidden and veiled by flesh, which is mortal, indeed will soon go to the cross and die. Yet even veiled by that mortality, veiled by that flesh, for just a moment, something in his voice caused them to understand what they were dealing with. Again, the picture is that Jesus is not being forced to do anything. These soldiers were not about to arrest him. If with two small words, he can make them cower in fear, who among them is going to go and throw cuffs on him? These men who would take him shudder at the very simple declaration of who he is. This is but a shadow of his glory. It's but a a minute blip of his glory, the same glory that will burn unbelievers at the very coming of its presence as we read in First and Second Thessalonians. It, it's less likely than what Moses got in the cleft of the rock. It's less than Joshua saw before the commander of the Lord's armies. It's, it's less than the glory that filled Solomon's temple, but it was there. It was enough to repel and advance and trained an equipped group of Roman soldiers we often like to sing a mighty fortress is our God. The best line in that, okay, maybe not the best line, but one of my favorite lines in that is one little word shall fell him. Makes a big deal out of the power of Satan, out of his desire to destroy us. And Luther then turns around and says, yeah, but but it's just one little word and God will take care of him. Luther wrote that based on Psalm 46. That little line, one little word shall fell him, is probably based on either verse 6 or verse 10. In verse 6, we read that the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Maybe verse 10, where God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. Jesus here doesn't use one word, he uses two, but the effect is the same. His majesty is too much for these, even this small little band of soldiers to stand in front of. And still, these men turned around and arrested him. They had to have had a glimpse of something. They had to have understood something about what they were doing when he said this and they all fell back and yet still, they arrest the man, knowing full well what they're doing when they arrest him. Don't underestimate the human ability to forget glory. People want to see the glory of God. They want to know the glory of God. They want to experience the glory of God. There are many people who will come into church services and they will understand, they will feel, they will, they will experience something of the glory of God, but it won't stick. 
They will leave and they won't, won't believe in the work that Jesus has done. They won't see the glory of what Jesus is. And they will leave and they will continue on with their lives exactly how they were before. Don't just ask to know and to see and to experience the glory, but ask for that glory to be seared into you. Ask for that glory to be so impressed upon you that it changes everything you see and feel and experience. And along the same lines, these soldiers being so meager represent the strength of Rome. Don't worry about governments and don't be anxious about persecution. You should be wary of it. You, you should be trying to work to keep persecution from happening. We should pray for churches that are being persecuted all around the world. We should be able to spot it when it's coming at us. All of those things are true, but there's no reason to worry about it. Is Jesus not in control? Why do we fret? Why do we act like he's not? In this small snippet, Jesus deflects an armed battalion of men with two words, while clothed in mortal flesh that is soon due to die. He is now risen in immortal flesh, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, given all power and authority. What do we have to fear? Work against it, sure. Fight against it, always. Don't have anxiety in your hearts. Don't worry endlessly about what's going to happen when somebody takes away your First Amendment rights. When it happens, Jesus is still Lord. Jesus is majestic. The power of the world is meager. Third, Jesus is constant and Peter is confused. Throughout the entire affair and even before now, Jesus shows his constant, faithful presence with his disciples. They don't understand what he's saying and still he presses on to teach. They don't get what he's doing but still he remains faithful to do more miracles, more acts. They show all of the typical human weaknesses and even, frankly, are sinful at times. But all the same, Jesus loves them and he loved them to the end. He loved them fully. Jesus is showing himself faithful to this. Friend, you need to understand that he is the same to you. He is faithful and he loves you to the end. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. That he knows the beginning from the end he knew of your sin before you came to know him. What are you going to do to now turn away the love of God? If Jesus is truly understanding all things that are going to happen, and he knows of your sin, he knew you better than you will ever know yourself. He knew every action that you were going to take, every bit of slander, every bit of blasphemy, every theft, every ounce of lust that is in you every wicked and deceptive thought that has coursed through your brain, he has seen all of it. He's seen the ones that you've forgotten about and he remembers them and he loved you and he gave himself up for you. Do you think that now he is going to change his mind and regret because you did something else that he already knew you were going to do that now he's gonna turn away from you? 
Believers, Jesus is faithful and constant. Trust in that. This is good news for us. It's bad news if you never thought about Jesus knowing every single thing that goes through your head. But it's good news that he knows that and has loved you anyway and that he will continue to do so. Jesus here makes it very clear that he will keep his own, that none of them are going to die. He looks at this band of soldiers as they come to get him, and he says, listen, I am the one that you are seeking. If you seek me, let these men go. He's very clear. If you want me, you can take me, but you're not going to touch any of these men. And, and to make you know that it was not like a request, he backs it up with scripture Basically saying, Jesus has already said that this was going to take place. Ultimately, he is always going to keep those his father has given to him. Now, eventually what he's going to do is he is going to give them life everlasting by dying on the cross. So that when he dies on the cross, they will one day eventually die. Peter, James, John, They're not like walking around Palestine still. They have died. But because Jesus has died and risen again, they will have eternal life with him and they're just waiting for their bodies to be raised up from the grave. So here, it is important that Jesus keeps them from dying with him. First, because this is a debt that he must pay for them. It is not theirs to share in it must be clear that he is dying for them. And to have one of them die with him in the same manner is to confuse the issue. And God won't have that. What's more, Jesus here symbolically does before the kings of the world, which he will one day do before the king of the universe. Before God Almighty, he will declare you safe because he has died. It is a symbol of what Jesus is doing even now before God the Father. He is keeping you safe from the wrath of God, covering you with his blood so that you might exist before the Father forever. Friends, Jesus has incredibly constant love for you. He does not sway, but he's given his life for you. He does not regret that now, no matter what you have done. So repent and see his faithfulness to you. But avoid what Peter does. Peter's confused about what role he was supposed to play, about how his faithfulness looked. Cut off the ear of one of the servants. It's an incredibly brave thing to do. Incredibly bad swordsmanship as well. Like, the ear's not even close to the throat. Kind of is, but, I mean, you're going the wrong way, it seems like. I know nothing about swords, but, I I mean, maybe I can ask Peter about it when I see him. It just seems seems like he should have cut the whole head off instead of the ear. But he misses. The problem wasn't that he missed. The problem was that he brought out his sword to begin with, as though this was the test of his faithfulness before Jesus. That this was how he was going to help Jesus sustain the kingdom. This is how he was going to help Jesus usher in the kingdom. Much of his confusion is going to be kind of unfurled, as it were, next week. But Peter thinks that he gets to use the things of the world to build the kingdom of God. And Peter is wrong. And when we try to do that same thing, 
so are we. It's not that we never use the things of the world to help aid the kingdom of God. It'd be silly to say that. I'm talking into a microphone so that you can hear me clearly. I wrote this on a computer and then printed it out. And I didn't even have to use like a Gutenberg press. It just pushed a button and the thing spit it out. We, we, we use modern technology all the time. But that modern technology is not what builds the kingdom of God. It makes it easier on us is the only thing. The same thing that built the kingdom of God then is the same thing that builds the kingdom of God now. It isn't the use of sword. It's not the use of power in the worldly manner. It is the use of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins and simply telling people that. That's all it is. Peter is incredibly confused because he thinks he can bring about the kingdom of God with a sword. And Jesus says, man, put that away. Am I not to take the cup that the Father has given me? Isn't this the way the kingdom is built, Peter? We do this when we think that we're smart enough and when we know enough Bible that we can argue people into the kingdom. We do this when we think that our worship is good enough, our music is of a high enough quality that simply inviting people here will be enough to entice them into the kingdom. We do this when we think that our good works are enough, that it will bring people into the kingdom just by watching us work. I do this when I think that my sermons are good enough to lead people into the kingdom. What moves people to faith isn't worldly power, even if such power makes the true power of God more accessible. The true power of God is the preaching of the cross. You have this beautiful bookend in First and Second Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul, or excuse me, in 1 and 2 Corinthians, there's a whole bunch of 1 and 2s. Paul should just write single letters to churches. It makes it easier. But in 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to them. Even as we read part of it today, he was going to go on right when Josh left to say, I showed up and I preached to you not with words of eloquence. I didn't come with a, a whole bunch of rhetoric that would get you to buy into what I was saying because you liked the way I said it or because you liked the argument. Paul says, I showed up and I preached folly to you. I preached the cross. And I did that because that is what saves you. That is the power of God. I can't delude that by, by bringing these other things. Paul clearly had the power of rhetoric. He clearly knew how to wield the word. But he said, I refused to. I wanted to preach the cross lest any of you be led astray looking for wisdom or looking for power. The end of 1 Corinthians, or the end of the Corinthian correspondence in 2 Corinthians, Paul then talks about all of the misery of his life. Shipwrecks, lowered down a wall in a basket like a kid. I don't, that's not something that kids do, but it seems like not something a man should do either. Being stoned, Riots everywhere he goes, being shipwrecked, being beaten and whipped. He talks about God pulling him up into heaven. But then, God turns around and gives him a thorn and says, you need to be humble, Paul. What Paul realized, I think, at least in part, was this that he is not so great that his own power, his own might, his own wisdom, his own strength 
is ever going to bring about the kingdom of God. What he was reminded, what we need to be reminded of is that he was a weak, impotent little man. And so are all of you. And all of the power of the world, wielded with all of our strength, cannot for one minute bring about one inch of the kingdom of God. The kingdom cannot be advanced by sword, cannot be advanced by vote, it can't be advanced by diplomacy, it can't be advanced by beauty. It isn't advanced by anything that the world has to offer. It is only advanced by the preaching, the teaching, and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, don't be confused. Know the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not only to his people, but also to his word. Lastly, Jesus is perceptive, and Caiaphas is phony. Don't have to spend too much time on the fact that Jesus is perceptive, Verse four kind of seals it for us. Jesus knew all that would happen to him. Jesus is aware of everything that's going on. He is aware of Annas. He is aware of Caiaphas. He is aware of Pilate. He's aware of the armed guard that are arraigned around him. He knows everything that's going on. He is perceptive both as a human being and as God to what is actually happening around him. And Caiaphas, on the other hand, seems to speak rightly. He seems to say something profound John is alluding here to something he said back in chapter 11, verses 49 and 50, when he told the rest of the Sanhedrin, the rest of his Pharisees, to shut up. Don't you understand something? It's better that one man die than for the whole nation to die. Indeed, you can hear that and you can think, that's true. That's really wise. Isn't that exactly what Christ proclaims? Isn't that exactly what the Bible proclaims? Isn't that exactly what John's getting at? Isn't that exactly what I, hopefully, am getting at? It is better for you that Christ died for you and saved all of us than for all of us to perish. But that's not what Caiaphas is saying. What Caiaphas meant is that it's better for this one man to die, even if it's an unjust death. It's better for him to die than for him and the Jewish leaders and the Jewish nation to lose the little bit of power that they had. They'd better deal with this because this man's getting a following and soon Rome is going to come and crush us. So it's better if we kill him, even if it's unjust, it's better that we kill him so that we can retain our power. This is wholly unfaithful to God's word, his law, his spirit, and certainly to Christ. Caiaphas seems to have insight, he seems to have wisdom, he seems to carefully consider the words that are coming out of his mouth, but he is phony. Beware of phony wisdom. Beware of any wisdom that misplaces your hope in the gospel. Beware of any wisdom that gets you to focus on things outside of the work of Jesus Christ with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If any line of thinking and especially any thinker, continuously takes you away from Christ and points you at something else, you ought to disfollow them on social media, you ought to stop reading their books, and you ought to move on to biblical thinkers and speakers who will point you always fully back at Jesus Christ. If you want to know about finances, it's fine. 
You can go to the world and you can find wisdom about finances. It's true and right and good wisdom. If you want to find out more about how governments work and you want to be right in the way that you vote and you want to be instructed in those things, it's right to go to worldly people and hear what they have to say and hear their arguments. There is good, real, true wisdom out there that is not Christian. But in the end, when such wisdom leads you to handle your finances in such a way that you are doing so without any reference to Jesus at all, it is no longer not wisdom, it is folly. When such wisdom leads you to start to consider government outside of your own citizenship in Jesus, that you're not thinking about your heavenly citizenship, you are primarily only thinking about this earthly citizenship. What you have before you is not wisdom, it is folly. Jesus is the one who is wise. He is perceptive of the ways of the world and the ways of his kingdom. Friends, listen to him. He is a fount of wisdom for us. He's a fount not only of wisdom in what he speaks, but in the way in which he lives. And he is always willing to refresh you in your life. Don't be led astray by phony wisdom that points you at all of the other things of the world and refuses to bring you back to Jesus Christ. This is, as many of you know, Reformation Sunday. It's the day that we remember Martin Luther pinning up 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. Now he did that not out of a great sense of wanting to start a rebellion against the church, not in a sense of trying to start a reformation himself. As a matter of fact, it didn't have much punch to it at all. He thought it would start a small debate among professors at Wittenberg. But by God's providence, he took that little act which wasn't much. It wasn't a bold step. It was an academic one. He took that, and by his own providence, God reformed the world with it. Protestant churches now reach everywhere, claiming the good news of Jesus Christ and preaching it and teaching it to people who are lost and dead in their sins, bringing men and women into the kingdom of God by the power of God. But God did that not through the power of the world. He didn't do that through the exposition of philosophy. He didn't do that through the wise teaching of academic literature. He did it through the preaching of the word. Our power has not changed. Nations will rise and fall. Mountains will crumble into the sea. Grass will fade and wither. The word of God will stand forever. That is where we are to place our hope and our trust. That is where we ought to place our hope and our trust for how, as believers, we build the kingdom of God, how we make disciples, how we do the things that God has kept us here for. It is only in the word of God which proclaims the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It is there and only there that you will ever find who Jesus truly is. And it is there and only there that Jesus can save you. Trust in that word and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, give us grace through this preaching of your word. Let Jesus be true to us, even if that means that everything we know is to be false. For he is better than all things. He is more sure than any foundation. 
more secure than any fortress, more compassionate than any doting mother, more wise than the greatest of philosophers. Father, give us eyes to see his majesty and ears to hear his glory today. We ask this for your glory and our good. Amen.